The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. So we are uh, continuing our series on the elements of redemption. Sorry, look at that. Um, So this morning we're going to continue talking about the different elements of redemption by looking at justification. So just to recap uh, where we've been, Jay spoke a few weeks about the super simple doctrine of predestination. I mean, there's probably no questions left there. But he focused specifically on the idea that we're predestined to praise. Uh, So he expounded uh, Ephesians 1, 3 to 14, and the idea that we uh, praise God for the different blessings. We praise him for blessing. Am I making that noise? Just keep going, okay. Uh, We praise him for a purpose, for assurance. Uh, Predestination, this idea that God has has chosen his people in Christ before the foundation of the world, uh, it's true at all times, whether whether we feel it or not. It's God's thing, which means that we can't earn it, we can't secure it, but we also can't screw it up. Uh, and, and that idea really resonates with me as somebody who's prone to, to messing things up all the time. Uh, and last week, David uh, walked us through 2 Thessalonians 2, the, uh, the doctrine of calling. And he used this word, this, it, it keeps coming back because it really resonated with me, the word summons of God generally, uh, that, that he used the example of his mom calling him down. So God calls us generally where mom says David and then effectually where she uses his full name. Uh, and I just, I, I draw great joy picturing David getting in trouble. Um, so, but, but the idea that David was preaching on was that God's calling allows us to stand firm in our redemption. Our redemption is unmerited. We don't earn it. It's complete. We can't do anything to add to it. Um, and it's secure. Again, there's nothing that we can do to mess it up. So uh, we all resonated with different ideas last week, but I really appreciated how David spoke about the irresistibility of God's call. Uh, Like, why would you want to say no? That a God who loves like that, uh, why would you want to say no to that call? So I'm going to read Romans 8, 28. We're just going to be in the book of Romans today. So what's going to happen is I'm going to read part of chapter 8, And then I'm going to jump back a couple pages to chapter 3. And then at the end, I'm going to jump forward again to Romans 8. So I'll just read uh, 28 to 30 in Romans 8. uh, And then we'll flip back uh, to Romans 3. We'll circle back to this at the end of of the series, or end of the sermon, excuse me. Uh, So verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So today we're going to focus our uh, reflection on justification Uh, how God in his grace and generosity declares us to be righteous. It's a legal term. Uh, it's, sometimes you'll, you'll see that it's, it's listed as a forensic term. It's just a legal term, which means God legally declares us righteous uh, before him. So we're going to focus our attention on Romans 3, 21 to 31. 
Uh, it's on, if you've got one of the Bibles from the back, it's page 885. I will have the verses on the screen, as if by magic. Um, so we're going to focus our attention there. Uh, but we're in 3, 21 to 31. I'll read it in a couple minutes. But it describes how human beings are put back into right relationship with God by grace through faith. And really what I want to spend time focusing on today is some of the myths and even distortions that we believe about God, about ourselves, about the Christian life, um, and what the Christian life even looks like. So I think it's fair to say that we all believe myths um, and distortions about God. And those myths drive how we think, how we behave, and how we live. We're programmed by our experiences to view God in particular ways. And either consciously or subconsciously, we have these views about God that, that may or may not be correct. And I'm not saying any of that to start off negatively or even to shame anybody. I think, for me, one of the liberating things about Christianity is that we can talk about that all in the open. And because it's all predicated on grace we can be open about uh, these myths that, that we believe and how they affect us. And when we come to the text of Scripture, I am even more grateful that there are things out there that confront these different views. So I feel like as a follower of Jesus, uh, what we're obligated to do is to look at how our view matches with what the Bible says and then to be confronted by that. Um, and I am part Italian, so I will do 90% of my communicating through my hands, so I do apologize if that's distracting, but after this many years, it's certainly not going to stop. And it's practiced every day. So I teach at Hillside Middle School here in Manchester, so if this was a house and we were a family, your kids would have a one in three chance of having me as their math teacher in seventh and eighth grade. So. Uh, the autograph session, yeah, I teach middle school math. I get it a lot. Like, I'm everybody's favorite, so um, autograph signing will be later. Um, sorry for whatever your math education was. I'm just, like, grace, grace to you. Um, so what I'm going to do is we'll work section by section. We'll talk through the different points, and I'll present what I think is a myth about God. And I'm not saying these are inspired at all. You might have a completely different way of framing that, and that's fine, actually. I want to hear about that. But I'm hoping that by meditating on God's truth, the truth of his character, the truth of his actions, on behalf of human beings, we can push back against this darkness. And I think that's really what it is. These distortions that we have about God, they affect how we live, they affect how we engage God's world. And I'm into a certain level of what I call Christian aggressiveness, which is starting to shove back on uh, some, of these, some of these false views, dragging them out into the light and exposing them for what they are. So uh, that's, that's what we're going to do. And I feel like that's really the purpose of the entire series, is to spend time just intentionally reflecting on different doctrines associated with redemption and salvation. And why? to recognize who we already are in Christ, that the Bible attests to who, who we are in Jesus already, um, to meditate on realities that produce awe for God and then introduce us into this idea of confidence and assurance and flourishing and joy, all the, God, all the things that God uh, has for us. So God's not blind, certainly, to our pain and our 
anxiety, uh, to the insecurity and the uncertainty we all feel. And it'd be wrong to gloss over those things because he doesn't. But the idea is that we can live all of that out in the open and we can find grace. And I'm hopeful that this passage helps on that journey. So I'm going to push the envelope on this revelation of God's grace and, and hope that we can, we can receive that today. So turning now to justification, uh, we turn to a doctrine that's at the very heart of the Christian faith. And it answers just the fundamental question, how can a corrupt human being experience right relationship with God? So let's turn to Romans 3. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about the context because uh, David did such a great job last week. And, and the whole first part of the chapter, like Romans, to be honest with you, is just this like super tight argument that Paul's making. And it's almost like when you try to show a clip from a really intricate movie and it just doesn't make any sense at all apart from... Uh, from like just watching the whole movie, if that makes sense. So some of the phrases that Paul uses here, he started them back in chapter one. So as I was planning, I'm like, oh, you got to have context because context matters. And then you start to back out and you start to back out. And then the sermon is about the entire book of Romans because you can't easily parse out uh, one from another. So I'm going to discipline myself as best I can just to go to chapter three. And in the first 20 verses leading up to, to what we're going to read today, you have the bad news. Uh, and David spoke about this last week. So if overconfidence is your issue, if that's, if that's your thing, the first part of Romans 3 is really, uh, really for you. Um, it's the sure antidote. So Paul's specifically addressing those who take too high a view of being born Jewish, like they think they're, they're really a top-tier operation think that circumcision matters and all that. And the question is, does being circumcised make any essential difference in your standing before God? And he unleashes this series of statements uh, from the prophets, which speak to the depth of human fallenness and corruption. And he says, nobody, doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile, nobody seeks God. Their throats are open graves. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And then in, in a phrase, I still don't even know what it means, but it sounds really bad. The venom of asps is on their tongues. Like, I don't even know what that means, but it sounds really bad. Uh, and, and, and Paul goes on and on uh, with the bad news. So that's kind of the context for what we're saying here. And 321 marks a transition uh, with the phrase, but now. And, and that, uh, that to me is a great phrase worthy of, of reflection. But let's read the passage. So verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. 
Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. He will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So, my main point today is that justification by faith alone gives us confident freedom in our new life in Christ. So let's dive right in. I think that this passage is all about the revelation of God's grace. So in verses 21 to 25a, we see that God's grace is revealed in justification. And the myth that I'd like to sort of start to tackle uh, is the idea that I need to be good enough for God to love me. So as you read these verses, I think the idea is simple enough, even if it's baffling. Um, This is one of those passages, it's not challenging to understand, but it's almost impossible to believe. Uh, I don't know if you've ever encountered that. Um, Like when you read Jesus saying, love your enemies, um, the Greek word for love means love, your means your, and enemies, shocker, means enemies. So the problem is not understanding uh, what that means, Uh, the problem is actually doing it. I mean, not not for you guys, for sure, but uh, for, for me, definitely. Um, so not challenging to understand, but, but really difficult to believe. So having just expounded at the beginning of chapter 3, just the utter corruption of human beings, uh, Paul speaks of the righteousness of God being manifest apart from the law, even though the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So this means that righteousness through faith is secured apart from the law, even though the prophets and the law long ago had already talked about it. So this isn't some brand new scandalous thing that, that God had done. Like the, uh, I used to believe, I don't know if any of you were ever there, that my, uh, my understanding of the New Testament, it was like the sequel to the Old Testament, where Old Testament's like, oof, bad. Uh, but New Testament where God kind of levels off and he's a lot nicer. Um, so I think part of what this is saying although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, is that God's not doing a new thing here. It's actually righteousness through faith has been there all along. And the good times keep rolling in verse 23. As Paul says, there's no distinction at all. So in the same way that everybody has sinned and fallen short of God's glory, so also are they justified by his grace as a gift. So there's no distinction. Um, Everyone's on a level playing field. So access to the right standing before God is secured by faith in the sacrificial uh, death of Jesus, which um, is expounded in 25. So are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And just in case you didn't know who Jesus was, he's the one whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So I think that that's fairly straightforward. What I want to pause here to reflect on is a little bit, uh, it's the difference between being innocent and being not guilty. And I think that that there is a difference. And this is one of the moments where a bit of translation work is actually helpful. Um, Verse 24 says that they're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption, uh, etc. So what the English translation doesn't really fully bear out is that the word for righteousness and the word for justify are actually the same root word. 
So they're, they're related to each other. We have the same thing in English. Um, joy, for example, can be a noun, uh, joy. I experienced joy as I ate pumpkin pie. Or it can be an adjective, joyful, the joyful person ate pumpkin pie. Or it could be a verb, uh, rejoice. They're all the same word. I rejoiced the day after Thanksgiving as I had pumpkin pie for breakfast. Um, so um, they're all the same words, but in slightly different form. So in verse 24, when it says they're justified by his grace as a gift, the word is actually the same word as righteousness. And the word that I made up to try to, because uh, that, that's kind of my thing, um, human beings... What it says, they're justified, yeah, but to bear out the meaning of that word, I say that they're righteousized, and I don't know if that's a word, but it helps me, <laughs> at least me, to, to show that that word for justification and righteousness uh, are the same. So, the righteousness of God has been manifested, and sinful or corrupt human beings are righteousized by his grace uh, through redemption in Jesus. Now, this might seem like small potatoes, like, like I had a couple spare minutes in the middle of the sermon, so I tried to, to fill it out with, with that. But I think there's actually something important here. Um, and I think that when we consider that we're not just not guilty before God, that we're actually innocent by means of what Jesus has done. It helps us to rethink our standing before God. Um, so to illustrate, I think that there is a difference between when you ask somebody how their day was, the difference between saying that my day was not bad and saying that my day was good. So one is like the absence of any negative. So you're actually stating things negatively. And, and honestly, some days are like that. Like there wasn't any catastrophe but it wasn't that the day was actually um, positive. So how does this relate to justification? What God has actually done is just so much more than just taking our punishment. And I think that that's inherent in the word. It's not just a reset button. He actually declares you righteous. So the case against us this folder full of every corrupt thing you've ever done, every corrupt thing you've ever said, every corrupt thing you've ever thought, that folder just stacked with accusations against you is emptied, but it's not just emptied. It's actually replaced with the pristine rap sheet of Jesus. Like it's completely clean. So when we talk about how God um, sees Jesus, or I, I, I'm... It's escaping me right now how we typically say that. The idea is not just that the folder's empty now, but the file is actually filled with the righteousness of Christ. And that file is sealed. Nobody, not even you, gets to corrupt that. And that's the... I, I, it, maybe it's, it's not a huge distinction to you, but in my thinking... It really changes things because I think some of us operate subconsciously as though we have to make up for what's lacking, as though God has emptied the folder and now I'm obligated to fill it. Does that make sense? 
Um, and even if it doesn't consciously make sense, the more I talk with Christians and especially with people who grew up in the church, it's a subconscious thing that they feel like they have to fill it up, um, that God is, uh, we'll, we'll get to more of that later, I'm about to jump ahead, but... Um, so uh, people can lie about you, they can mistreat you, they can throw your sin in your face. It doesn't corrupt what's in the folder. And if that's not a liberating word, then I don't know what is. By thinking that we're merely not guilty, we think we have to bolster our religious resume before God. I, I, don't, I can see some of you nodding your head, so I, I know I'm not the only one who feels this way. Um, like we have to, God's grace gets us started, but we have to make up the difference. And I just don't think that that's what the New Testament teaches. So just to restate the myth, I need to be good enough for God to love me. That question has been fully and finally answered. Nope. <laughs> In fact, it's even worse than that. The more you try, the worse it is for you. And I'd be willing to bet anything, the people around you as well. Just think of the religious leaders of Jesus' day, right? The more righteous you try to be, the more callous you become to the people around you. And in their case, you actually miss what God's doing in your midst. So how does this change how we think? I'd like you to imagine you go into a job interview and you know that you already got the job. Has anyone ever experienced that before? On the flip side, how many of you have ever experienced a job interview where you constantly second guess, like after the fact, like, oh, I wish I hadn't said it that way, or oh, I can't believe I said that, or did I take too many sips of water? And you, you're, you feel that kind of perpetual anxiety. Um, I would think that walking into a job interview knowing for certain that you got the job just liberates you in all kinds of ways. You can say whatever you want, like you can't mess it up. The job's yours. And I think the same thing is here. Um, this folder, this legal standing before God is absolutely secure. So I think we can be a little bit more bold. Um, I think a lot about family dynamics. I think about kids because I work with them a lot and I have some of my own. Uh, knowing that you're completely loved and secure just makes you bold, I think. Bold like in a, in a good way, not, I don't know if that was the word that you heard a lot growing up, um, bold. Don't be bold or naughty or not that I heard these words, but I had siblings that, that I, I heard. Uh, but, um, but it alleviates this need for stress and anxiety. You don't constantly have to prove yourself. Um, you don't have to fret about how others perceive you. In Jesus, you're already secure. So knowing that God has already sealed our future just makes us confident in the present. So God's grace is revealed in justification. Second, God's grace is revealed in forbearance. So if we go to the next slide. The, the myth I want to confront here, and you might frame it in a different way. I, I'd love to talk about that, actually. This idea that God is waiting for us to fail so that he can shame us. Now, nobody's going to really state it that way. I think on a fundamental level, everybody knows that God is loving and, and all that. But I think that there is a subconscious tendency towards thinking that God is just disappointed in us or, or actually actively wants us to fail. 
So the sacrificial death of Jesus was to show God's righteousness. And why? Like you think this was to show God's righteousness. Why does God need to show his righteousness? He doesn't answer to anybody. Well, actually, uh, the text seems to say that he does. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. So um, God has left sin unpunished. And this is a problem. God can't leave sin unpunished. Uh, it's central to his character, central to who God is. So God has to deal with sin, but he also has to maintain grace at the same time. So what is his solution? He actually deals with sin by absorbing the penalty himself. So he's able to maintain his righteousness that sin has been dealt with, but he's also able to maintain grace that he absorbs the penalty on behalf of people who can't uh, atone for their own sin. The shift in thinking, at least for me, is seeing that God actually doesn't delight in punishing sin. Um, think about the passage. In divine forbearance, he actually left sin unpunished. So if your idea of God is that he's some sort of police officer in the sky just waiting for our mistakes, I think the passage says otherwise. And he's got to deal with sin for sure, but he doesn't delight in it. And I hope that that makes sense. And if it doesn't, I'm, I'm happy to try to clarify as best I can after. But I think that many people, even Christians, operate under the idea that God is constantly just disappointed with us. Like at best, he's just this ambivalent father who wants us to impress him. Or at worst, he like actively wants us to mess up. Um, and I just don't think that that's the case. Like he's the God of I told you so. Um, so I don't know to what degree you experience these thoughts, but I think that these verses are just, just a massive shove back against this darkness. So we're going to talk about this more in a few minutes. But I believe that the Bible portrays that God who is fundamentally for people and he's fundamentally with them. And I think that understanding this just reframes every part of our Christian life. Our failure, uh, certainly real and excruciating, it doesn't define us. Like, we can fail, and that's okay. It doesn't catch God off guard. It doesn't cause him to give up on us at all. And we'll circle back to this. My hope is you've got some sort of mental image for what that looks like for you, whether it was a coach, a former boss, a mentor, something where you, you just had the internal sense that you could risk something because you knew that somebody believed in you. And even if you completely botched it, it was okay because you were secure in the love that they had for you. And I think that having those people in our lives helps us to conceive of God in exactly the same way. For me, as I've uh, reflected on this passage, this is really the idea that's resonated with me most. The idea that freedom in Christ, um, this, this idea of freedom, and when you've been shattered, uh, you're forced to stay, take stock in what you've built your identity on. Um, and having gone through that, I have more and more come to this fundamental truth that in Christ, I don't need to establish my own identity. I don't have to define myself. I don't need to be self-conscious about what other people think or how I'm perceived. I'm free. I'm free in Christ to succeed and I'm free in Christ to be bold and fail spectacularly. And none of it changes God. 
None of it changes his fundamental loyalty to his covenant. People can accept you or reject you. It doesn't shift God's allegiance. None of it changes what Jesus has already done for you. And I think that that's a liberating word. One, uh, one example that I think illustrates this for me, a lot of you know that Cynthia and I are runners. Um, well, Cynthia's the runner, and she makes me, she makes me do all that stuff. But um, that's not actually true. So I stole a Bible, and I lied. Um, so that's two, but I get one more strike. Um, so uh, I listened... I, I had a, uh, actually, the man who introduced me to Christ was my high school earth science teacher. I know, public school earth science teacher, of all people, introduced me to Christ. And he went to teach in Kenya at Rift Valley Academy, and he wrote me a letter describing a New Year's race that he ran in, and he ran with the Kenyans. And if you know anything about that, you know how bad that went for him. So they do this, like, mile fun run, and he went all these Kenyans went tearing out at the beginning, and he thought, there's no way I can maintain this for a mile, and he couldn't. But what he noticed is that all of the Kenyans were, like, dropping out at the end of the first lap, and then at the end of the second lap, and he was basically, like, the only person who finished the race. And when he finished, they're all, like, laughing at him, like, what a ridiculous thing, because the East African, like, philosophy of running they go out for as hard as they can, for as long as they can, and they feel no shame at all if they can't make it. They just stop, they take the bus home, they try again tomorrow. And I just think that is, is awesome. Where this, this friend of mine, there was this sort of brooding, miserable American mentality, like, I'm going to finish even if I'm terrible and sucking wind at the end and collapsing across the finish line. So it's just a difference in, in philosophy. And I've come to understand this philosophy of East African runners so that when you see them when a race is over, like they're sitting at a table, they're all eating together, you can't tell who won, you can't tell who dropped out, Yet, like they're just all experiencing this, this sense of joy. And for me at least, as a runner, I, I envy that, um, but I think it's the same for us in Christ, that God hasn't called us into his kingdom to be living in constant shame or brooding self-consciousness or anxiety or deceit or corruption, that God hasn't called us to those things. Justification liberates us to start over so we can bask in the light of God's grace. We can drag all those feelings of anxiety out into the light, and they don't define us. We're free. Um, so I hope that that illustration helps. And he talks at the end of the, this section of verses, like, what becomes a boasting? So Paul asks this rhetorical question in verse 27, well, what about boasting? And he answers his own question by saying that Jesus has forever leveled the playing field. God is beginning and end. He's creation, he's life, he's salvation, all of it. He is just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And I believe this transitions finally into our third point, that God's grace is revealed in abundance. So the myth that I want to confront here is just the idea of scarcity. So I think of scarcity and abundance. Uh, when we left this morning to drop Caleb off, he looked at the thermometer and he said, there are not a lot of degrees out there. And I, we affirmed that as we're all jockeying for position around the wood stove 
um, that yes, uh, that the temperature today is the perfect representation of scarcity. Um, so God's grace is revealed in abundance, and the myth is that there's just a scarcity to God's love. So God's love and his grace, it can't be limited. Um, and maybe I'm the only person here who periodically feels jealous uh, and anxious, but at the heart of these moments is a sense that God's limited. And has anyone else here ever experienced jealousy? It's just, a, just two or three of us, okay? That's good. You're, you're all so whole. I can't wait to sign up for, for discipleship. Um, but uh, <laughs> I'm a broken person. But my mom thinks I'm special. So, uh, so anyway... We live with this sense that God's limited in his resources, that there's only so much of him to go around. And James 4 actually talks about this, where it says, what causes fights and quarrels among you, James says. Um, and it's because you, you don't have what other people have, basically. And you, you want to kill him to get it, basically, is what he says. And you don't have because you don't ask God. And then when you ask God, you can tell I've spent a lot of time reflecting on that passage. You don't have it from God because you don't ask with the right motives. Like, you just want it for yourself. So, scarcity. Let me tether myself back to the manuscript. Um, so, I think part of what these last few verses uh, speak to is that God's love and his grace, it just can't be limited. And I think, again, this living in this freedom of the inexhaustible love and grace of God just liberates us to be free in so many ways. So, um, just to be a little bit more disciplined here, uh, this, is, this is what it talks about. It can't just be limited to one people group. So God is justifying everyone by faith. There is no distinction anymore. Um, so the argument that Paul's making here is going to continue in chapter 4, and he's going to talk about Abraham, and he's going to talk about their forefather in the faith, and the fact that he was justified by faith, that it's not this new scandalous thing that God is doing. It's been there all along. It's built into the foundation of what it means to be God's people. By trusting in Jesus alone for justification, we don't overthrow the law in verse 31. Like, it's not this new thing uh, that God's doing. Uh, it's actually, we're upholding the law. Another way to translate that word is we establish the law. So um, we're establishing what's always been there. So because God is one, Paul says, there's not separate families when it comes to God's grace. It's available to any and all by faith alone. And it can't be contained and it can't be limited. And the scope and availability is just infinite. And Israel's failure, if you know, like, here's the whole Old Testament in a nutshell, uh, their problem was that they settled in, right? They thought that they were special, and they just started to disdain people who weren't Israelites, right? So they're just trying, like, there's only so much of God's love, we have to contain it in one people group. No, actually, they were supposed to be on mission, bringing the nations back to the Lord who created them. And the mission just continues on, like even as far as the book of Revelation. It says seven times we read about every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Like it can't be contained into just one people group. It can't be limited even just to the church, that it has to spread. Uh, and that's, that's, what mission, that's what mission is. Even later on in Romans 8, the natural world, the trees and dirt and stuff groans, just waiting liberation.
And if God shows this love, if he shows it this lavishly, I think that those of us that he has liberated from sin and corruption are compelled to show the same lavish love that God does. And we share it boldly, even if we share it imperfectly. And out of assurance and confidence and the hope that we derive from what Jesus has done, we go into a world that's just desperate for grace and love and hope, and we live that out. Not in just the like type A high-level ministry stuff. We, we do it in our families, and we invite people into our lives, and, and we do it that way, right? So we go for it with, with gusto in terms of the way we love our, our families, the way we love our friends, our coworkers, all those things. So God's grace empowers us to live an entirely new life in him, a life marked by freedom, uh, free in our giving and receiving love, free in our vulnerability. Uh, we're free to fail. We can be confident and assured, not because any one of us is really that talented, uh, though some of you are, are brilliant. Uh, we're not confident and assured in ourselves or in our gifts or in our abilities, but we stand firmly in what God has already accomplished on our behalf. Where we were once marked by sinful, corrupt fear, anxiety, now, like the way the passage starts, but now the grace of God changes everything. So I'd like to conclude by going back to Romans 8 and reading the rest of the chapter. So I mentioned earlier that our failure uh, doesn't catch God off guard. It doesn't change what Jesus has done. And I think the New Testament vision of God is someone who's fundamentally with you and for you and who desires your flourishing. And he's just a constant source of boldness. Uh, in fact, if you have, uh, like, I have tons of other passages that had to, they ended up on the, the cutting room floor, uh, but I kept them. And, and like, I think the New Testament talks about this stuff all the time. So, uh, and yeah, I think I did just talk about like parts of the Bible ending up on the cutting room floor. So I guess that's my third strike. So it's good that the sermon's, sermon's over, essentially. Um, but I think that the New Testament attests to this reality regularly. God wants people to be bold and confident in him and encourage them in that way. So I'm going to read, uh, and actually I'll have it up on the screen as well. So Romans 8, 31 till the end of the chapter and 39. So, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
May we be empowered by God's spirit to live day by day, moment by moment, in the reality of what God has already done in Christ, making us righteous before him. Let's pray. God, all of our, our reflecting and, and meditating and reading and examining these passages is nothing if your spirit isn't at work in us. And I pray that, that whatever was said here that was of value would be things that we would, that we would reflect on, that your spirit would do something inside us. And not just inside us as individuals, but in our families and in our church. Uh, and God, I do pray for a work of your spirit as we extend out into our city, um, that um, there are people who are desperate uh, for the treasures that we hold here in you. And I pray that you would, you would empower us to, to be on mission and to live those things out uh, among those who need you. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.